0: So, So, Dan has famous friends. Welcome Welcome to another segment of... Dan has famous friends. Dan talks
1: about his famous friends.
0: Except this time your famous friend hates you, also. I don't know if he hates me so much as my work. Yes, okay. (laughs) Granted... (laughs) Christopher Lloyd is a very nice man. The one time I've met him, he was gracious and kind to everybody. How long ago was that? That was Supernova in Australia, 2018 or 17? So pretty recent. Yeah. Okay, Mm -hmm.
1: yeah. Well, I can't imagine his hearing has gotten better since then. He was almost deaf when we worked with him on the movie. I also think I do want to make the caveat that well, I can very honestly call John Delancey a friend. Yes. Christopher Lloyd is a guy I know, which is
0: different. We're counting it. We're counting it. We're counting it. Okay. But so, that's, a, that's a good distinction to pretend to have made, but we're throwing it out the window But we're right throwing now. it away. Mm-hmm.
1: Christopher Lloyd and I are best
0: friends. Yes. You and went spelunking, we which have is, you know. Half
1: of a locket mm. that one day we will reunite and gain superpowers. Nice. Yeah. So, you want to hear the hate story first, or do you want to hear the, the whole sordid tale? Oh, I need to hear the whole sordid tale. Okay. Well, what that means is that this is basically going
0: to be an episode where we talk about adapting my book into a movie. Okay. That so. sounds good. We did Wheel of Time, and we talked a little bit about your book, but we didn't really dig into this I whole thing.
1: really, and I'm very curious to see how different our experiences were Yes. Because you were on a very big budget TV show. Yes. And I was on a very small budget movie.
0: Right. And thank you very much. Once again, the Coke has arrived. (laughs) Uh, For those not watching on YouTube, once again, it's the legal kind of Coke. It's the legal kind of Coke. It's because there's like...
1: These enormous lights that are right here and are super bright, and I'm going to have a migraine by the end of the night if I do not fill my body with a controlled substance. So this is the one I have chosen. So let's start this story at the very beginning, which is I Am Not a Serial Killer had just been out, I think, less than a year. It was very new. And it was actually published first in Germany and the UK. About a year before it came out in the
0: States. Because your popularity was much larger in Germany and in Europe in general than it was in the U.S. at that time. Well... At the time, I wasn't popular anywhere.
1: Oh, this is before that. Yeah, this is the very first
0: book. It's the first book. Yeah, Yeah. obviously.
1: What happened is that Tor, the US publisher, wanted to put them on a very tight release schedule of Mm -hmm. every six months, which means they didn't want to publish the first book until all three were turned in and edited, Right. which meant that Germany and the UK got out ahead of them, and for about a year, I was basically a European author. But Germany had a huge bidding war on it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah. The UK deal was nice. It was okay. Mm -hmm. The Germany deal at the time was the biggest deal you or I had ever had. And for a while remained the biggest deal. Yeah. Anyone we knew had done. mm Mm-hmm. It was was great. It was quitting Mm -hmm. money. Yeah. Which is how I remember when it happened because- I had to stay in my real job, my desk job, until my son was born. He is now 13. So this happened 13 years ago <laughs> because I had to hang on for like two or three months because of the way the timing worked out mm-hmm. because unemployment insurance is actually not bad. It's pretty good
0: for everything except labor and delivery, maternity. Maternity is just terrible in Utah regardless. Yes. Every insurance we've gotten, they're like, ah, people have too many kids. You don't get insurance on that. Yeah. Your deductible's five grand.
1: Well, and to be fair, this was kid number four. So Mm -hmm. anyway, so an Irish film director named Billy O'Brien walked into a Waterstones over in London, and he was looking for something to read on a plane or just looking for new projects, and he found I'm Not a Serial Killer, and he read it, and he sent me an email. And I know that you've gotten countless of these Emails that Mm -hmm. usually come from a producer to an agent, and they're like, this studio is interested in licensing, whatever. They're very impersonal Mm -hmm. for the most part. This letter from him was about two pages long, and it was direct from one artist to another artist, director to author, basically just telling me all the things he loved about the book. And what really impressed me is that he liked it for the same reasons that I liked it. I don't know how many people have read I Am Not a Serial Killer and thought, oh, I can see elements of Russian literature in this. But Billy and I both totally
0: identify the book in that way. You're really selling this to the audience, Dan. (laughs) You're really good at pitches. It's it's like Dostoevsky, except even more
1: sad. See, I did a huge honors senior project class on Dostoevsky, Mm -hmm. and I actually think he's hilarious. Go read The Secret Agent Dear listeners, it's a really dark comedy about terrorists in London, and it's horrible and it's hilarious anyway. Wow. So yeah, your pitches just are just are so great. <laughs> so great. Mm. So anyway, we signed a movie option. Uh-huh. And then it took about six years for anything to come of that. So wait, the the option lasted six years? They kept renewing it. And actually for a while, it was the Irish film board that had the rights because he ran out of money. And so he went to them and said, please help me hang on to these rights. This is a big deal. And so the Irish film board had it for a while. Anyway, eventually it was a Chinese television company that stepped in. In, I want to say, 2013 Mm -hmm. and said, all right, we want to learn about Western filmmaking. We want to just, we're going to finance your movie on the understanding that you are going to let us watch everything, see how it's made. Not necessarily that they wanted to be on set, but they wanted to be behind the scenes Watching where the money flowed and why it flowed in those directions. They were doing that a lot back then. Yeah. Um, that, that was about the time when they were trying to break in.
0: Yeah. And you'll notice, Tangent, that they are now moving away from that because they've learned all of this. And now it's actually a bit of a crisis in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. China's just said, no, nah, we're going to be making our own movies now. Yeah. bye For a, a long time, there was
1: this big mm-hmm. kind of pop the champagne heyday of foreign investment money. Yes. And everyone thought that was going to last forever, but no, it was, I -hmm. think, a concerted effort to learn how to do it, learn how to make a Hollywood-style blockbuster, and I think we're two, maybe three or four years away from us
0: getting big blockbuster Chinese movies instead of the other way around. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's already started. You can see, not the main public, but you can see the reviewers are starting to Mm -hmm. review them and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway... We were a beneficiary of that Mm -hmm.
1: investment strategy. And so when the money arrived, it turned into, you know, after six years of absolutely nothing, it was all of a sudden, okay, we need to turn this around as fast as we possibly can. And in fact, it happened at just the wrong time because the story takes place, a big chunk of it, in the winter. We needed snow and they were trying to see, well, if we
0: can get this together in two months, We'll have snow. That's insane. Now, Hollywood <laughs> does they this didn't. a lot, right? Yeah. They, they're like, nothing, nothing, nothing. We need to sign this deal right now or it falls apart. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they do that a ton. They Two do that a ton. Two months is crazy. Two to-
1: months is crazy and it didn't work. And we were very lucky in that even having to wait for an extra year, mm-hmm. people didn't lose interest and fall away from the project, which okay. happens a lot. Yeah. So it wasn't until the winter of... 2014, I want to say, Mm -hmm. but maybe I'm off by a year and it was actually 2015. Either way, that's when they got this together. And in the intervening year, Mm -hmm. we had to cast it. And I, to be clear, did not have any creative control over anything. It sounds similar to the situation that you have. You might've had a little more actual authority At the
0: the wheel of time. I have authority, but not control. Yeah. Like Rafe is able to go into meetings and say, Brandon says this and people are more Mm -hmm. likely to listen because I was an author on the project and because of the authority I kind of have in the business but no control. He couldn't yeah. say Brandon says this, therefore we must
1: therefore do this. Therefore we have to yeah. do this. Cuz mm-hmm. you know, I've read some of the articles that you've written or yeah. blog posts mm-hmm. and we've talked of course here on the show about you making suggestions and mm-hmm. some of them they take and some of them they don't. Yes. So I did not have any actual control over this. Mm-hmm. But you know, Billy and one of the producers came to my house. This is when I lived in Germany and spent a couple days there, and we just talked through casting. And we eventually later had other conversations about special effects and things, Mm -hmm. and we can talk about that if we want. I got chewed out by Billy for not knowing visually what the monster looked like. And I'm like, it's it's a book. It's a monster that is indescribable. He says, I have to put it on screen, Dan. (laughs) I need to know what it looks like. Anyway, the casting decision came down inevitably to... Mm -hmm. Mr. Crowley, the main lead, the old man. Right. And this was one of the problems that plagued us for those six years of trying to get funding, which was if you go into Hollywood, even today, and say, I've got a movie that I want to make. The two leads are a 15-year-old boy and a 75-year-old man. They will laugh in your face because there is essentially nobody in either of those demographics who can headline a movie. Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood, Eastwood, but he refused. (laughs) Okay. We knew out of the gate we weren't going to get him. And so what they presented me with when we finally got down to this was an itemized, numbered, ranked list Mm -hmm. of pretty much every old man actor you can name was on this list. Mm -hmm. And it was in order of who they wanted to get. And they started at the very top, you know, which was Clint Eastwood, and he said no. And we actually did number, okay. I might be slightly off about some of these numbers, but here we go. Okay. Number two, I'm pretty sure was Warren Beatty. Okay. And I don't know why Billy O'Brien was really like excited to have Mm. Warren Beatty. He said no. Number three was Ian McKellen. Okay. He actually gave us a tentative yes. Really? And he was attached to the project for about five
0: months. Wow. Yeah. Hey, That would have been an interesting... That uh, would have been a
1: very different movie. Yes. He really liked it. He thought it was really cool. He eventually ended up not having time. So maybe the year wait is what Mm -hmm. took him out of it. Anyway. Your good friend, Amy McCullen. My good friend, who I've never met and have never communicated with in any way, but who did think that my movie was cool enough that he said yes to it for five months. (laughs) Number four on the list was Christopher Lloyd. And he said yes. And he was on board. And it was great. We had to do some kind of negotiating with his agency. Like we had to promise his agency that we'd cast everybody through them for the rest of the movie, which is a very common thing. Yeah. The agencies
0: and their packaging deals and things. Yeah,
1: But we didn't have to really negotiate with him. He usually plays lovable goofballs or really cheesy whack jobs. Yep. Like, you know, Judge Doom in... Roger Rabbit. Yep. That's the bad guy he usually gets. And so a straight dramatic villain role, Mm -hmm. he had never had the opportunity to really do before, and he was excited to do it. So we got Christopher Lloyd. And every time I asked, well, what about the rest of the cast? What are we going to do for the rest of the cast? It was always, nope, shut up. We have to get Christopher Lloyd first. Because if we go to literally anybody else and say, what what, what do you think about one of these roles? Their first question will be, well, who's the the lead? Who's the lead? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah. I should say Max Records, who played John Cleaver, we actually had him on the line and down for it for most of that six years of waiting when the live action Where the Wild Things Are came out. You know, I saw that on a plane or something and I emailed one of the producers and said, hey, what about this kid? Or I I think I emailed Billy directly and Mm -hmm. he said, oh, uh, you know what? He would be great. And by the time we get money, he'll probably be the right age. And also, our producer, Nick, just finished doing a movie with him. So he knows him really well. So we had Max, whose mom turned out to be a YA librarian. Mm. So she was familiar with the books. And he signed on when he was 11 years old. And then by the time we actually shot the movie... He was 17 or 18 and right on the edge of being too old for the part. Have you seen Hollywood movies? I know. How
0: old is Evan Hansen?
1: I know. He, he looks like he's 37. Mm-hmm. And Tom Holland is, is definitely not the teenager that he portrays. Mm-hmm. I watched, the, by the way, the Tom Holland Hot Ones episode. Oh, yeah? And he was just swearing through the whole thing. And I was like, Spider-Man, this is not how you're supposed to talk. And he was talking about going out and getting drunk. And I'm like, I know you're like 27 or whatever, Mm -hmm. but please let me pretend that you're a high school student. Anyway, so we had Max Records, we had Mm -hmm. Christopher Lloyd, and then the rest of the pieces all fell into place. Actually, John Delancey, speaking of, Mm. did volunteer to come in and be our Dr. Neblin. Yeah. Yeah. And then because of this agency thing, yeah, we good. weren't able to use him, uh, which sucks.
0: But, that is too bad. Oh, well. So. So, what did the kid think about playing a app, right? He was cool. Yeah. I mean, Max Records
1: is a very unique guy. He <laughs> is very, you know, as child actors tend mm-hmm. to be, fairly mature for his age. Yeah. But also, he is very kind of anti-celebrity. In a way that a lot of child actors are not. He's not one that I ever worried was gonna, you know, go get addicted to cocaine and completely go off the deep end because he really rejects that whole side of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. He spent a year kind of hiking mountains and off the grid and things like that. He thinks about things in a different way. And so he was really good in the role. Yeah, he was great. All the casting was really good. Yeah. We got Laura Fraser to be his mom. She was the blacksmith in Knight's Tale. And she was also some drug dealer person in Breaking Bad. I can't remember. Lydia. (laughs) Anyway. Oh, let me tell you the one other casting story, which is Mm -hmm. the best friend, Max. Yeah. So Max Records played John Cleaver. And then we had a kid named Ray Ray, whose name was Raymond something, but everyone called him Ray Ray, playing the best friend who's... The character's name is Max. Mm -hmm. And Ray Ray was amazing because he was not an actor. He was like the casting director's cousin who was at the audition because he helped drive her there. Some weird situation like that. And he just showed up and his attitude was so perfectly uncaring about anything. Not in like an aloof way, Mm -hmm. but just in a... Teenager way? Teenager way, yeah. Yeah. And so like, we didn't have to do a huge casting search for him. We didn't even have to costume him because he would show up wearing just bizarre T-shirts and we're like, yeah, okay, that's that's perfect. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They shot one scene that was a conversation between the two characters and they're like, let's give you some business to do. Uh, Or it might've even been in the script that they were eating fried chicken. And he just ate this entire bucket of fried chicken while filming. And, you know, every time they do a new take, he had to eat a new piece. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, we're like, hey, thanks, Ray Ray, for coming in. This was a great scene. He's like, can I have the rest of that chicken? (laughs) 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 Took the whole bucket Mm. and left. Mm. He was awesome. Anyway, so we are slowly circling around to the point of this story. You ready for this? Mm. We were filming this in Michigan. In the dead of winter, it was at times 40 below Fahrenheit, like negative 40 Fahrenheit. And we had to film a lot of the scenes at night. You know, we were there in the winter on purpose because we needed snow. It was catastrophically cold. It was horrific. And so we did this one scene, which is a key scene. And I'm spoiling everything about this story. This is the scene from the movie. Right. Yeah. Isn't it? No, no. Well, I mean, it depends on what you mean by the scene.
0: I guess the scene, what what I'm thinking, that's the one at the the lake. Uh, This is not that scene. Oh, no. This is not that scene. Yeah. Uh,
1: I was there for the filming of that scene as well, Mm -hmm. and that was also cold, but that was during the day. Uh This is the one where John finds the monster, Mr. Uh Crowley, killing a trucker in the middle of the night. Right. It's Max's
0: dad. Spoiler warning. So for those who don't know, you should go watch the movie. It's great. This won't even spoil the movie because the movie's about ambiance and mm-hmm. things like that. But the story is a young man with tendencies towards stalking, shall we say, has been very good about clamping down on these tendencies inside of himself. But then a monster starts killing people and is hiding as this old man. Yes. Basically. And mm-hmm. no one else would possibly believe that there is a demon in town that is this kindly old man that is killing people. And so John decides to do something. Yes. Mm-hmm. In fact, I remember we were still together in a
1: writing group at mm-hmm. the time that I was doing this. And there was a key scene where he realized it was a monster. Everyone mm-hmm. thought it was a serial killer. who's He yeah. was killing people. And he discovered it was a monster and he tried to get the police to mm-hmm. do something about it. And the monster ended up killing the police and totally getting away with it. And it was the writing group that helped me nail that scene. Because without that scene, I don't think the rest of the movie really makes any sense.
0: But well I, I like to <laughs> I like to brag about this also because you thought of the idea while we were driving home from writing group together in mm-hmm. the car. We at that point we're driving up to Scar's house, I think. Yeah. Or something like Scars that. Scars or Allen's yep. in the other valley. And on the way home, you were just gushing in your creepy way that you do about the McDonald Triangle. <laughs> I had been writing basically Epic Fantasies. Yes. That's what I grew up reading. That's mm-hmm. what I thought I was going to write. Yep, you'd done some comedic ones, right? I uh, had no. done some straight ones. Straight I had ones. done Didn't you do comedic as well. I'm trying yes, to remember. Because Black or Darkness right. sort
1: of, kind of. Yeah. But they were all increasingly dark, Mm -hmm. and I think at that time, we were going through Victorian Batgirl. Yes. Remember that one?
0: Yes, Victorian Batgirl. I do remember (laughs) that one. That one was good. It was better than I remember
1: it. I put it up on my Patreon Mm -hmm. uh, a year or two ago, and I'm like, oh, this is actually much better than I realized. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we were driving home from that, and I was talking about the McDonald Triad, which is a now debunked... Theory of Serial Killer Behavior Prediction.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, I hadn't heard that it had been debunked. It sounded tenuous all along. It sounds like one of those things where correlation is not causation Mm -hmm. and with some wonky statistics attached. Yeah, for sure. What the
1: McDonald Triad was, I guess still is, but no one cares anymore, is that if you look at serial killers, some overwhelming percentage of them have a history of pyromania, bedwetting, and animal cruelty. That's the triad. Mm -hmm. Today, the FBI uses a, if I remember correctly, 17-point prediction rather than Mm -hmm. just three to try to be much more granular and much more intelligent about it. We could talk about serial killer profiling forever because even that 17.1 right now is being, people are realizing that it's very incomplete because we are discovering that serial killers are actually far more prevalent than we ever realized they were, far more common. And the thing is, we only ever catch the ones who are obvious about it because they do stupid things like steal people's eyeballs or something right. like that, you know? So anyway, I was talking about that and talking about these mm-hmm. three traits common to all serial killers. On our drive home. On the drive over. home. And then you said, that sounds like a book. <laughs> yeah. In fact, you the way you said it was, that's a great first line for a book. Oh yeah. There are three mm-hmm. traits common to all serial killers. I have all of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that is a great line for a book. That's not the first line no. of the final book. It's not in there at all. But that's where the idea came from. So anyway, we have gotten away from our story. Well, would not be an episode of Intentionally <laughs> Blank if intentionally tangential. Mm-hmm. If we weren't okay. So back to the scene. Hey, have you watched the TV show? You, you? No. I need
0: to. Because it looks like it would be right up my alley. I'm just curious. I'm not sure if it would be up my alley. Just the things (laughs) that I've read about it. It's Mm -hmm. like, hey, you know all that stuff like I am not a serial killer or Dexter or things like that where you have this like character who's doing terrible things, but you empathize with them. Let's take away the empathize part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. It is honestly starting to get very frustrating sometimes to mm-hmm. see the sheer volume of sympathetic sociopath stuff show up on tv mm. and i'm like guys i've got six books <laughs> we've only used the first one let's let's do the whole thing but anyway all right sorry so I, you just gave me a perfect opportunity for no another that, that was a good one mm-hmm. okay so we're back in that scene we are filming this at approximately one o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. so everyone's tired it is like i said about 40 degrees below zero So everyone's freezing to death. And the purpose of the scene is that John is following the monster as the monster is hunting for prey. The monster Mm -hmm. has to kill people in order to survive. Yeah. And so it's the middle of the night, and he's like, I've almost got him. He's running out of resources. He's falling apart. He hasn't been able to kill anyone. If I can delay this long enough, he'll die. And then he comes across a trucker in the road who's Mm -hmm. just gotten home from a big long haul drive and the monster gets him. Mm -hmm. And so the monster is very weak at this point and John is able to confront him directly but not physically. And so we've got the trucker on the ground who is this great guy and I can't remember his name, but he's laying on the ground just covered with prosthetic like viscera and then all the fake blood we could pour on him. So he's even colder than normal because he can't move. He's on the cold ground and he's wet. Did you like have a heat blanket underneath him or something? Not underneath him. This was a super shoestring, low budget indie movie. So what we had was like 20 of us just off camera, out of frame, waiting with blankets and hair dryers and chemical heater packs and all this other stuff. And so he would be on the ground like, oh, I'm dying. And then the monster would be trying to get him. And John would be like, no, I won't let you have him. And they were yelling and screaming at each other. And then they'd say, cut. And someone would put Christopher Lloyd into a warm car. And we'd all run out with blankets and try to save this guy from hypothermia. And then they'd say, okay, we're ready to shoot again. And we'd all have to take the stuff off and say, sorry, buddy. And then splash a bunch more blood on him. And then they'd get Christopher Lloyd out of his nice warm car. And they'd scream at each other again. And so it was just absolutely brutal it was freezing it was physically trying it was emotionally like just awful Mm -hmm. and we finished and we all went back to the hotel where we had set up our like studio Mm -hmm. and everyone's there and everyone's just kind of shell-shocked poor max records was just standing in the parking lot and i said hey are you okay he's like yeah i just need to decompress a little bit And then we went inside and everyone's kind of slowly warming up and Christopher Lloyd walks by and he looks right at me and he says, never write a scene like that again. (laughs) And you being Dan said, that means I did it right. (laughs) Well, yes, Mm -hmm. that does mean I did it right. But at the same time, I was writing John Cleaver Mm 5 in my hotel room during the like two weeks that I Mm -hmm. was on set. And there's a very good reason that John Cleaver 5 is set in Oklahoma and Texas in the summer. (laughs) Because I was sick of the cold and I wanted to do something better. The joke on set is that I should write a book that's set in Fiji. Yeah. Because then they would all get to go there Mm -hmm. when they filmed it. But I went for small town Oklahoma instead. Shoestring budget. You're probably not going to Fiji. Probably not going to Fiji. You You are probably going to San Diego. Ah, see, but these were the heady days Mm. when we were making this and everyone thought this is going to be amazing. Mm. Everyone's going to love it. It was amazing. And we're going to be able to make all six books and it's going to be this massive franchise. It's a very good movie. Well, thank you very much. I like it a lot. It did not make a bunch of money. Mm. In fact, the distributor studio that bought it Mm kind of paid a lot of money for it, but then didn't really promote it or distribute it, which is frustrating because I'm like, well, then why did you buy this thing? And also one of the production companies in the chain still owes Mm -hmm. me like $25,000, something like that. Mm, Good Um, luck. Yeah, and I'll never get that back. Mm -hmm. I'll never see it because they basically keep passing the buck to each other. Like, well, this company bought the rights. That means they assume the debt as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we've learned from Disney's current- Battles. That is not what that means. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if they're going to screw over
0: Scarlett Johansson,
1: yeah, then there's there's no there's chance that I'm getting my twenty thousand bucks. Anyway, so yeah, that was the thing. They finished the movie, and then it took them like a year to edit mm-hmm. and put it all together, do all the post production, and then it was was it twenty seventeen that it came out. Yes, that sounds... I think it was. right 2017, it debuted at South by Southwest mm-hmm. in Austin. And I was there, and we had Max, and we had Chris, and we had Billy, and we had everybody. Mm-hmm. And it was great. That's one thing that I don't know if you had the opportunity to do since yours was a TV show, was to be at that debut
0: with the full cast... Seeing it in a theater. I had that chance, and I didn't go. Oh, no. Yeah. The premiere was in London. It's COVID. I did not want to go to Europe during COVID. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. I would have had to fly home from Hawaii, where my family was on vacation, Mm -hmm. that same day, get on a plane to London, and go to the premiere the next day. That would have been been awful. I did get an invitation, so thank you to Sony and Amazon for that invitation. I sent my agent instead, but you've got to remember my Mm -hmm. experience is different from yours in multitude of ways. Oh yeah. One is though that I wasn't there in the trenches for making it, right? Mm -hmm. I probably could have been there more if I'd wanted to, but it was in Prague and, you know, I went to set and things like that, but I was treated more like a visiting dignitary then I was there to be part of the production, right? Yeah. And that's what I wanted. The Wheel of Time, as, as I've said before, is not mine. I'm mm-hmm. involved in the Wheel of Time. When we film Mistborn, right, I will be there on set and things like that. But it is interesting. When I, we were in Prague, producer Adam went with me. We talked about this. But it was also winter-ish. But we showed up, and they handed us donuts and soup. And sandwiches and put us in a heated tent with a video monitor showing every take and mm-hmm. assigned us an assistant to wait upon our every need. Oh. And that was our experience as we sat there <laughs> for a few hours watching them do takes after take and mm-hmm. chatting with the actors and with the director and with yeah. Rafe and stuff like that. And those behind the scenes yeah.
1: conversations, in mm-hmm. my experience, are usually a lot more interesting. Than they were interesting. Being
0: there while they yeah. filmed something. It was you know? really fun to talk with the actors and things like this. Like yeah. the actor who plays Matt pulled me aside. He's like, all right, I got to understand this character. And I'm like, well, I can talk to you about this character because this character was the hardest one to write. Mm-hmm. And we had a big, long chat about why Matt was hard to write, why Robert Jordan's Matt worked better than my Matt did, particularly in the early books of mine. And, you know, some stuff like that. It was just- That's so cool. Just delightful. Yeah, Uh, My favorite Wheel of Time set story is, Adam, you can tell me if I got this wrong, but I I feel like it was like right after we had been on set. I get this text from Rafe. He's like, you're going to love this. We had the set on lockdown because we were filming something or other and we didn't want anyway, people weren't supposed to leave or come to set for this thing. And the actors who play Matt, Perrin and Rand stole a car borrowed a car it was a you know a one of the production cars and matt's actor convinced rand to sit in the front and drive them into town because they wanted to go clubbing that night and they've been <laughs> on and we caught them and there's poor rand's actor and poor Perrin's actor both just feeling terrible and matt's actor just in the back laughing and he's that, like we, we got really yeah appropriate yeah. for yes. what i understand of the characters yeah. so mm-hmm. that's so, great Yeah, Rafe will tell that story better than I will, but I was amused by that. But I wasn't in the trenches pouring blood on people or things (laughs) like that, right? I was sitting in a heated tent with uh, headphones and some production assistant saying, do you want more soup, Mr. Sanderson? So, you know, (laughs) that's awesome. Where I put in my work is Mm -hmm. in the the behind-the-scenes material that they were filming for B-roll and stuff like that. They really did a lot of that with me for promotional purposes and things like that. and I Like talking head interviews? Yeah, talking head interviews. And here is, you know, you're walking on set for the first time, Brandon. What do you think of it? Filming little Instagram videos that they could put out and say,
1: everyone watch this thing because this guy likes it.
0: Yep. So that was my experience. Yeah, I'm... Yours sounds way more visceral, not to uh, make a pun on purpose, but uh, I will take it. I said earlier that we could talk about the special effects. Mm-hmm. The main special effects
1: team, mm-hmm. the guy who designed the monster, who did mm-hmm. all of the design of it, is actually Toby Froud. Okay, He is the son of Brian Froud, who mm-hmm. did all of the design for Labyrinth and Dark Crystal, mm-hmm. all the concept art. And in fact, he is, you know, the little boy Toby in Labyrinth that gets kidnapped. Right. That was Toby Proud himself okay. as a kid. Okay. And so he, you know, is all grown up now and he actually works for what's the claymation studio, Leica Studios. Okay. It's in
0: Oregon or wherever. So why were they mad at you? Like you're telling me they're mad that they don't have a description of the monster. Like any production I've been on, the amount of weight of concept art they do could like bury a house, <laughs> Right. And so it's like, they're going to do all this. Why are they mad at you? Because they wanted answers. Mm.
1: I think it was mostly joking anger, but it was Mm. like, Dan, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to design a monster. I'm trying to tell Toby what we need.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, And so it was questions like, well, you know, the monster can disguise himself as a human. Is he wearing a skin or is it just a shapeshifter or what does it look like? And I'm like, well, here's what I described in the book. And he says, that is not enough. You're not a visual medium, are you? I'm like, no, I'm not. So anyway, we had Toby Froud Mm -hmm. doing all the design work, but then the actual guy in the trenches doing the puppeteering and the effects and the blood and the goo and all of that stuff. And now I can't remember his name and I feel really bad about it. He is one of the original puppeteers who worked on Dark Crystal and Labyrinth Mm. and stuff like that. And he jokes that he puppeteered Toby... Because he was the Toby Wrangler on the set of Labyrinth. Right. And so a lot of the really bad reviews for the movie have said that once the monster finally appears in the final scene, it looks like bad CG. Which is funny because it's pure practical effects. Mm. It is all an actual live puppet with actual black goo dripping off of him. And it was all of this original Muppeteer effects guy who was doing all of that. And in fact, in the credits, it lists Max Records as John Cleaver. And then way at the end, it lists him as Apprentice Goo Boy because he helped with the puppeteering. And part of his job was dumping black goop on the puppet. So what did the director go on to do? Has he done some other films? He has. His first movie was uh, like the kind of the one that got him on the map Mm -hmm. was this indie Irish horror movie called Isolation that is about... And this is where, you know, we get into the the territory where every pitch sounds stupid when you say it out loud. Yeah. It's a movie about how uh, bovine growth hormone turns cow fetuses into killer monsters on an isolated farm in Ireland. And it okay. sounds so schlocky and so dumb. But when he sent me that original email and was like, hey, we want to make your movie, mm-hmm. Don and I rented it mm-hmm. and watched it. And even just the credits... Uh were spooky. He has such an incredible gift for framing shots and for pacing and for lighting and all of this. The cinematographer that he works with on that project, on our project, on several others, actually went on to win an Oscar for the movie called... the Something. I don't know. It was about Queen Elizabeth, like a kind of medieval movie Uh where... Queen Elizabeth had a friend, and it's some synonym for friend, the companion, the something like this. Anyway, want won a Oscar for cinematography. We'll trust you. We'll yeah, just, you'll just trust me we'll just, yeah. that that movie and someone, Adam, is going to tell us in a minute now what it was. The, I want to say it starts with an F. Anyway, what Billy has done since, during the time we were trying to make our movie and didn't have the money, he was kind of paying the bills by doing these schlocky sci-fi channel horror things. Not, not Sharknado, mm-hmm. but that kind of stuff. Okay. And since then, I know he's been working on some other projects. He tends to go for very quirky characters and very dark atmospheric stories. Mm-hmm. And he's awesome. Billy's great. He and I were able to do several sci-fi conventions together promoting mm-hmm. it. And Chris came to one of them when we were in San Jose which was awesome. So,
0: I wish that every author I knew had had your experience on the movie, right? (laughs) Because we've had multiple friends get Mm -hmm. movies made and your experience is the highlight of them all.
1: Oh, for sure. Like Mm -hmm. it's my first book, Mm -hmm. which got made into a movie that I got to be involved with and was actually good. Like that never
0: happens. Well, and beyond that, I'm talking more about the things of They liked you and treated you well. Yes. Which is not the experience I've had with all of my friends and movies. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they have had bad experiences, shall we say. Almost again, like I said last time. In fact, I can't think of one that had a bad experience with the actors or the writers, like the creatives involved. Yeah, it's always with the 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 producers, the money. Yes. Let's just say Hollywood is a weird place and Mm -hmm. they often don't know what to make of authors as we talked about on our Wheel of Time episode, right? Like we tend to be an unknown quality. And so there are lots of stories about don't eat the craft services, you know, (laughs) and things like this where it's like, really? Uh, Okay, I guess. Yeah. I guess that's not for me to have. Whereas Adam and I and my sister Jane got to have lunch with Trollocs. Oh, that's cool. Yes. So that was a lot of fun. So
1: did you get to be in like an extra in the background?
0: So I didn't, I didn't ask to. Okay. And I think they would have let me if I'd wanted to, but I don't know. I know I go too far in this. I love the Wheel of Time. I'm very proud of my time on the Wheel of Time. Mm -hmm. I am excitedly a producer trying to help make it the best it can be, but I don't want to supplant Robert Jordan yeah and the author cameo felt a step too close to that that makes um, a lot of sense. like I might do it in later seasons, but in the first season, I just I didn't feel comfortable.
1: yeah, let it be its own thing. Let yeah. it be his
0: thing. That's yeah. very classy good mm. for you. but I didn't go be an extra on yours either, even though you invited me. yeah, I, so uh-huh.
1: the first big plan for yeah. me and Billy thought this was the funniest thing. he was so excited for it. Uh-huh. There's a scene. In a Chinese restaurant where John goes in to find his mom and says, hey, you need to help me with this thing. And it was like 30 seconds long, mm-hmm. if that. But he thought that it would be really funny to have me in one of the booths reading I Am Not a Serial Killer. Right. And so as the camera pans by, as John's mm-hmm. walking by, an eagle-eyed fan would be yeah. able to point out, oh my gosh, that's the author with the book. Right. And then because of scheduling, stuff had to get moved around and I was actually not in town when they filmed that scene. So that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. What we did do is that I was at the very, very end when they pull the very last body Mm -hmm. out of the woods, like over the closing credits, I'm one of those cops. Mm -hmm. And so my full experience of being on camera in a Hollywood movie is... Standing in six or seven inches of slush, frozen ice slush, in a ditch where, as far as I can tell, every single citizen of that city took their dogs on walks to poop in the ditch. So it's just like six inches of slush and dog crap. And we walked back and forth about 60, 70 feet, carrying that special effects guy that I mentioned. He was our dead body. (laughs) Uh, on a, like, on a one of those mm-hmm. things that you carry dead bodies on back and forth like 20 times, so they could get a good shot of it. But they took me into the costuming thing and they got a big police jacket and a police hat. And then the costumer said, Here's a box full of just pins, just put on whatever you think looks good. This is why everyone's dad complains that, like, the medals right. on a military uniform are wrong, it's because someone just hands them a box of pins and says, give yourself something good. So <laughs> one of the little pins I found was a name tag that said Brian Wilson. And I'm like, okay, canonically, in mm. my own head, I am actually one of the Beach Boys who has left and become a cop in a small town and is now pulling a dead body out. So that mm. is, that's a canonical part of the universe now.
0: Next time. Ben needs to be the dead body. (laughs) That would be great. How'd that be, Ben?